Drew Oyajay has appeared on the podcast before to discuss his writing. He's an author, organizer, and web developer who currently serves as executive director of CUTV and publisher of The Breach. He's also a co-founder of The Media Co-op and Friends of Public Services. He wrote a book with Nicholas Barry Shaw called Paved with Good Intentions, Canada's Development NGOs from Idealism to Imperialism. We talk about that book in our previous episode, so have a listen if you're curious. James Steinhoff is an assistant professor and Ad Astra Fellow in the School of Information and Communication Studies at University College Dublin. His research focuses on the political economy of algorithmic technologies, data, and digital labor. We talk about his stunning, insightful book, Automation and Autonomy, Labor, Capital, and Machines in the Artificial Intelligence Industry, which is chock full of information about the history of AI and its relationship to capitalist modes of production. I should note too that he co-authored a book called Inhuman Power, Artificial Intelligence, and the Future of Capitalism in 2019, which is also a great book on AI. So it feels as though every other day we encounter a new angle or emerging fact around machine learning, generative AI, and the incipient market for these sorts of data-driven digital products. Whether it's the billions of investment dollars that are driving the sudden boom in startups focusing on applications of generative AI, concerns about automation and job loss, concerns about plagiarism and the saturation achieved by ChatGPT, or important discussions about the exploited labor force that actually fuels ChatGPT's core functions. Like an army of US contractors are being paid about $15 per hour to perform the work of data labeling that drives that platform. We're inundated by information about this supposedly revolutionary technology. And that inundation is fueling the hype cycle, further driving up investment. Here we talk about the goals of the capitalist class in determining the future of AI. What will the fragmentation of the labor force look like in the wake of this technological change? Are large language models going to replace human communicators? Does this signal a lasting shift in the market for intellectual labor? What about all of the data that's collected to drive the creation of those large language models? Can we imagine ways to produce machine learning outside of that massive corporate capture of our data? Whose data is it, anyway? There are lots of changes coming, there's no question, but the question too few of us are asking is, who will be in command of that change? In the EU, there's the AI Act, which Steinhoff calls a watershed moment in the regulation of private business and its enclosure of AI technology. Jay reminds us that when it comes to the potential for public and democratic control of data, even though it seems like an unfair fight, we still have to, quote, start building power somewhere. We also dig into fictional representations of AI. We ponder what movies like Terminator 2 Judgment Day get right in terms of AI generating its own programs, generating, as it were, its own ideas about function. Or, as James puts it, creating a situation where the program is the output rather than the input. Steinhoff and Jay share some insights on potential avenues of resistance to, not just resistance in the classical political sense, but also a kind of imaginative or intellectual resistance where the public shies away from falling for the hype. They discuss their research into the history of AI and unpack these moments of AI winter or AI depression, where social and technological barriers basically shut down the hype cycle. They demystify machine learning and also talk about some of the basic elements of AI-generated art and text. The reason why we're here is, of course, to talk about, you know, not just AI broadly, but like open AI in particular, which this, this company has left a huge mark on the kind of collective imagination, it feels like, at least for the time being, with ChatGPT. So, you know, James, you wrote an article recently for Truth Out where you talk about this. Um, you say that, quote, OpenAI is a leader in the form of artificial intelligence known as large language models, um, and that a large language model is a statistical model of a language created by machine learning. So you don't like you don't spend a ton of time in the article explaining what that means, but you have written more broadly about the nature of these acts of algorithmic manipulation, to use your term. This moment, though, does feel significant 
um, at least in the, in terms of like collective awareness of the material possibilities that chat GPT represents. And you, and you suggest like in the article that maybe chat GPT does seem to at least, um, teach us something. Um, so to again, quote the piece, you say it teaches something about how human cognition works and the differences and similarities between how humans and machines process information. So I wanted to start by just asking you to, if you could expand on what a large language model is, like its literal scale, and how the chatbot in some ways is teaching us about human cognition. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I will note that in the article, I did say that it, it will. I was speaking in the future tense right. there more about uh, what exactly differences it may reveal down the road. I don't. I don't want to say that it, it is working like a human brain because it, it's not, as mm -hmm. far as I know. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so what, large language models are basically yeah they're a statistical representation of a language. Uh, so basically, in terms of the statistical likelihood of particular characters existing in a certain sequence or not, right? That's that's really what they are. So they mm -hmm. are. A, are not trained on grammatical rules they're not you know built by linguists who have a certain theoretical understanding of, of a language they are just essentially you know patterns extracted from large huge data sets the actual scale of chat gpt's data set i don't think has been disclosed because they don't really want to say exactly what it's been trained on but mm. earlier large language models um have you know i think have been disclosed and you know the entirety of of english language wikipedia represents only a small fraction of what these would be trained on for instance and wikipedia mm -hmm. is quite a large data set on its own mm -hmm. so uh the scale is is truly massive right um you can think like uh, i believe reddit is one of the inputs uh chat and chat gpt so all reddit posts that exist lord right um, yeah <laughs> yeah so uh and whatever other forums that exist are on the internet hmm. so the scale's big yeah whatever they can get from google books i imagine uh yeah i mean who knows we will only find out down the road perhaps that's intense yes yeah, so, i mean they're big that's what we can say um sure. yeah one of the things i think that's interesting about these is that they they are performing sophisticated linguistic output without being trained to do so, without being told how to do so, I mean, right? This, mm -hmm. um, this is the interesting thing about the machine learning paradigm in general is that the program is the output rather than the input, right? Traditional programming, you combine data with a program to get an output. In machine learning, you, combi you combine data with uh, a learning algorithm to produce the program as the output. Hmm. And so that's, you know, rather than build a program step-by-step, step, rather than build a, lang uh, you know, a, a program that can produce linguistic output with large language models, you have a learning algorithm extract a pattern from the training data. And that's the machine learning model that is a program on its own, which no one had to program explicitly on how to do this stuff it just has emergent properties sure i mean um i'm i'm fascinated to like hear more about this idea of like emerging properties or emergent properties the kind of you know uh the the program sort of taking over and and the generative qualities of it um and it's something that definitely you're you're kind of speculating on in your book um you know automation and autonomy in terms of like the emergence of even the automation of automation where like the algorithms begin to be written by algorithms, which is yeah. like, feels like some science fiction shit. Um, but, yeah. you know, I wanted to ask uh, you, Drew, about one of the things you talk about in your article for the breach on AI, which is the kind of hype, right? This feeling of like being, um, you know, swept up in the, the hype around AI. And, and like the thing that you're saying is that the element of hype has always been part of the market for commodities based on artificial intelligence. Uh, the way you put it is that the hype method is something deployed repeatedly by Silicon Valley. And it should be said, not just in the field of AI, like there's a sort of network that you map where you're describing um, 
to quote the article, a sophisticated infrastructure built around the tech press and its symbiotic relationship with venture capital. Um, do you feel like um, that part of the narrative is sort of being left out a little bit, this effort to build enough hype that you garner enough money to actually produce some of these sophisticated AI-driven like technological commodities? I think the you know, the, the people generating the narrative, you know, are the narrative. And so it's hard to, hard to know that you are the narrative when, when you're inside it, I guess, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the sense that we get our, most of our information, you know, via journalists and so on. Um, but, but yeah, I mean the, you know, Silicon Valley talks unabashedly, even, you know, I, I, I mentioned in the article that, that critics call it the hype cycle, but, but proponents call it that too. Like, mm-hmm. I think they they understand that you need to enter a hype cycle in order to build up an investment bubble, which gives you the sort of um, ability to hire big staffs uh, to like hire lobbyists to do all the marketing. And so you've seen this kind of go through a few different phases. I'm certainly Airbnb, um, mm-hmm. uh, Uber, like have have gone through this, have have done the, this sort of hype cycle phase where they're like. You you build up you build up a critical mass of sort of press coverage and discourse about what you're doing, and that gets you sort of market penetration, and then that gets you investment, which then lets you do things like you know with Uber, like they actually the reason people liked Uber initially is because they they paid well, you know, <laughs> and mm-hmm. they were provided a better service than taxi cabs. Um, the 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 pay the pay well part is quickly dropping off a cliff um and and that was always part of the plan like the paying well was just an upfront capital allocation in order to get the market share and some somewhere close to a monopoly so that you can keep your sort of global market dominance machine running um and of course that generates more investment which creates a loop right so Mm-hmm. So we're seeing that with AI, and it's really interesting. I mean, if you look at Sam Altman's statements recently, um, on the one hand, uh, you know, he's talking about uh, ChatGPT4, which is the next version which is coming out, and he's like actively lowering people's expectations about the advice. He's like, it's not going to do what you think it's going to do, you know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's saying things like to the New York Times, like, we're going to create the successor species to humanity. We're going to create... <laughs> Uh, general intelligence that's going to be able to take over every task that humans do and will basically exist in this world of like pure leisure where we only do things that we want to do right like and so and so the the hype (laughs) that's the hype right that's that's the that's that's his contribution to the hype cycle where he's saying these things that are just these absurd projections into the future of ai like you know uh, somebody described the hype cycle as drawing a straight line from an actual accomplishment to some kind of unbounded future. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's basically what he does. But at the same time, he's lowering expectations for what's coming up. So which mm-hmm. one's true, right? Like they're both true because one, one they, they each have a different function. One mm-hmm. is to one is to have like an actual product that doesn't fall short of expectations. So that's one function. And then the other function is to generate um, this sort of limitless capital allocation <laughs> that comes from not just from Microsoft, but like from investors at large that are pouring billions and billions of dollars into AI on the premise that it's going to do these things. And, and of course, he's talking in a public relations way. But I think th- passing through the filter of like the you know, business press and the, and the investor mindset you know, what investors see is the ability to make a lot of money by automating processes and, uh, you know, disrupting industries and effectively, you know, removing livelihoods, uh, taking them off yeah. the table. Yeah, yeah. Or at the very least, uh, <laughs> the hype cycle becomes its own sort of um, self-fulfilling prophecy, because basically what happens is that uh, when you allocate capital somewhere, you don't allocate it somewhere else. And so if the future of medicine is AI, or if, the, or if the future of manufacturing is AI, then you're not going to invest in human-based, you know, manufacturing, even if the AI thing is just based on like totally vaporware promises, like you're going to move investment into that. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because the billions are going to not building like a, a factory based on what we know works. It'll be based on investing in this giant capital, which then has to have a return and so create a whole political you know once you have billions of dollars sitting somewhere like a chunk of that goes to lobbying goes to like 
pressuring and hyping and and doing all these things. So 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 it cre- it you know it creates this um, it, it gathers its own momentum even if it's not based in 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 reality. That's not the point. The point is to is to get political power, to get financial power, and and concentrate it in in a particular sort of technological corporate nexus. Yeah, absolutely. And like both of you really lay bare in your writing how to quote James's work, like automation means the increasing autonomy of capital from labor. Like you're both boiling things down to the question of labor. Uh, But I wanted to pick up on something you were saying, Drew, about like this straight line, because it's not been a straight line. Like that's one of the things that I've learned from uh, doing this sort of research is that Um, you know, there's been cycles of hype, but there have also been uh, what James calls these kind of troughs of disappointment. Um, You know, the narrative of just like a steady uptick toward a moment of kind of technological singularity that's going to free us all from the toil of work um, is is false and it it obscures more than it reveals. And so, yeah, like, um, James, I wondered if you could like unpack this idea that like, it's not just about the centrality of hype, for AI research, it's also about these these troughs of disappointment, this kind of up and down. Um, and in particular, like if you could explain what the various points of AI winter have been historically, like why did those lulls happen? Sure. Yeah, I, I, I agree with with Drew's point on hype there. It's an interesting fact about that, like you know, in, industry around hype. That's not just the tech communities themselves. It's like I think the consulting firm Gartner is one that sort of brought the hype cycle, tech hype cycle thing to the mainstream. And they model, they, they, they do a, I don't know, yearly or whatever, they, they sort of chart different emerging technologies on a, on a hype cycle. But, but they are one of the major contributors to the hype around new technologies, which is really funny. Um, I, I don't think they acknowledge that in their, their tracking, but they're like Accenture and that they put out these very hype-filled reports on new technology with a zero critical thinking in them. But yeah, so... AI winters uh, and hype. So yeah, there, I mean, there have been two historical AI winters. Uh, it's generally held. And the first one would have been around the first wave of AI, the so-called symbolic or uh, old, old-fashioned AI now, like some people call it, which is the, the non-machine learning paradigm, the other historical paradigm to AI, where you build a, a system of more or less heuristic rules that acts in a sort of high-level logical way, processing symbols in a way comparable to, you know, a a formal logic system or something, as opposed to machine learning. Um, And around the end of the 70s or so, this approach uh, was recognized, had had pretty severe limitations. And in the 80s and 90s, it was attempted to commercialize this technique with something called expert systems, which are these you know, systems of rules where people would try to literally capture the expert knowledge of workers in a system that could then be queried by uh, unexperienced people or management, you know, basically to just capture expert knowledge of workers in a mm-hmm. literal digital tailorism, if you will. And this uh, had limited success in, in some limited, you know, constricted domains, but then it was realized that this couldn't work when uh, beyond simple, smaller domains, because you literally have to put in a, a rule about every possible thing that could happen, right? So if you're not working mm-hmm. with a very constrained domain, this system couldn't work. And that sort of, you know, um, led to a, a big uh, moment of you know, AI depression, if you will, when it was realized, wow, the maintenance and the upkeep on a system like this is infinite because you have to add new rules to account for any new system or any new change that happens right so mm-hmm. if you're monitoring traffic and and suddenly people have you know a traffic control ai but then suddenly people start using electric scooters and those aren't accounted for in your system then you have to build in a whole new set of rules for how to process those for instance mm-hmm. so that was a big failure then but then machine learning arose you know to automate the production of systems and of course, then there was another lull when it was also realized, mm, we don't know how to scale up machine learning either. And that mm-hmm. happened in, let's say, the 90s or early 2000s. And then that only that sort of winter only ended in the 2010s when uh, the so-called deep learning paradigm happened. Basically, when people realized, oh, 
what we needed was data. And now with the digitization of everything on the internet, we have data. And so that ended, let's say, the recurring winters with the latest, well, whatever season we are now, I don't know, spring, summer, fall. Mm-hmm. Hard to say. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, uh, to kind of build from that, I was wondering about like just the question of kind of definitions here, right? Because like the the season we're in is partly determined by uh, the the terms in a way, like how we actually name these things, I think has itself a generative effect. So like chat GPT is just one example of what's sometimes called generative AI. Uh, and I'm wondering about what this type of software does specifically, like why it's important for the spring of AI that we're in. Um, are there other examples that people would be familiar with of generative AI? And I asked that really because I think it might make sense to just take a step back and like offer listeners some basic definitions. I know, you know, Drew, for example, in your article, you talk about how, uh, quote, AI derives its power to automate, manipulate, predict, and innovate from collecting these vast quantities of data, uh, from concentrating massive computing power and surrounding it with human trainers. But that form of AI is what we now call machine learning. Uh, is that different from generative AI? Um, how can we like tease these things apart and is it useful to like to do that work? Generative AI is a, a kind of machine learning. Okay. So machine learning is a general approach to AI. Uh, and generally you can think of typical machine learning applications as performing uh, a function of classification or of clustering, which just means grouping things by similarity, uh, if not categories. Mm. And that, 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 that very simplistic sounding two functions, uh, that's what most machine learning does. Generative AI, instead of classifying data point or, or clustering data points like that, uh, it produces a data point. It produces some sort of output. So that's the difference. Gotcha. Uh, are there other examples of, of this? Like, I know it's not just chat GPT. Like the one thing I was wondering about is just the, the rise and fall of DALI, um, this particular form of generative AI, generative AI that got in, uh, like garnered all kinds of headlines as a thing that was going to potentially displace the creative labor of artists. It, you know, why do you think the hype around that seems to have faded? Is it just that chat GPT is the new thing for the 24 hour news cycle to kind of um, zero in on? Or is there something banal about the kinds of art that Dali was making that people are starting to sort of come to terms with? Like any thoughts on that specific example of like AI generated art and our relationship to it? I haven't been following that super closely, but I, but I, I, I feel like there's a novelty factor that sort of plays in here. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, um, you know, when Dolly and um, uh, was it the other one, Mid Journey, um, mm -hmm. different image generators came out. Obviously, people, a lot of people will find it fun to play with them. Yeah. Um, and and so I think you know you saw there's sort of it sort of generated its own meme round to to borrow to borrow a term from cryptocurrency um, hype cycles. But um, but but yeah, I think ChatGPT obviously has more far-reaching practical applications that i think are sure are are being th that i think go go a little go a little deeper in their implications um but that said you know you get that you after the initial burst of hype with with the image generators you you do get sort of more specialized things that that can actually start to have impact on people's livelihoods which mm -hmm. isn't to say that you're going to see that in the in the hype that's the actual that's where the actual capital goes to allocate because it wants a return, right? So if, if you can create a service that people can sign up for, for, you know, 75 bucks a month, that takes away some percentage of your, of the time spent on illustration or design or something like that. The genius of the algorithm is that it, or these, these sort of glorified autocomplete sort of models is that they, is that they change things a little bit enough to make it look like it's original, but it's, but it, but it really is just based on, on uh, on text that other people have generated. So, um, but it mm -hmm. looks different enough that you can't sort of claim copyright infringement because mimicking isn't copyright infringement, you know, stylistically. Um, right. I think people jump from, you know, AI is useless 
to AI is going to replace graphic designers. I don't think either of those things are true, but it, but it, but it, it can certainly turn graphic designers into more of a curation or editing or supervision type of role, um, mm-hmm. you know, progressively. Um, obviously, it's right now it's just a, a tool that maybe like cuts a few corners, but, but you know, and, and, and there's a dystopian version of that where uh, companies don't want to pay people for hours that they're not working. And so the benefits to graphic designers or to artists you know, isn't, isn't really there. It just means that they're going to have to do more automation facing and soulless work, uh, to make a living. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and I think that's the case everywhere, but, but certainly, certainly that seems to be the sort of track we're going down with, with image generation is that you, yeah, just like with the Buzzfeed thing, like you, you're, you're, you're supervising a machine, you're providing sort of, yeah, adult, adult supervision, more and more uh instead of doing the actual clicking and creative generation and and stuff like that and i think and i think you know obviously that that's good for the bottom line of whatever company is relying on that but it's also Mm going to create feedback loops where you know ai generated stuff is going to start to is everyone's once everyone has it then you're going to have to find ways to to set up set yourself apart from the crowd in a marketing term so so that's going to create that's that's going to that's going to have significant impacts on on the aesthetics i think um mm-hmm. and and what people see as being professionally designed or what people see as being a nice looking website or poster like that's that's going to shift significantly uh, and you're going to see things because that's often based on sort of scarcity or uniqueness or authenticity mm-hmm. i think you're going to see um, those things become more prized, at least at the high end. Um, but at the low end, you're, it's just going to have negative effects on workers, I think. Yeah, I think there's two um, historical precedents or episodes that are interesting to think about in the terms of the image AI. And one is the photography, because the, the same exact panic uh, occurred around the advent of photography, right? It's going to destroy painting. Um and it's very similar to the discourse going on around these AI models, right? And mm-hmm. uh, not to say that they won't have effects at all. Like, like I agree with Drew totally on that. But, um, it, you know, it seems likely down the road, you know, photography didn't annihilate painting. Uh, and uh, so the effect will be more complex and, and convoluted than, than mere annihilation, as some people, you know, are worried about. And the second second thing I think is interesting to think about is in terms of job roles and fragmentation, automation of work, is the the role that existed in the early internet of the webmaster, right? If you remember this, you know it was like a a multi skill person who would basically do all of the different tasks that are required to create and maintain a website in the, the early internet, and that that role doesn't really exist anymore through a combination of you know just uh, applications that have automated functionality built in or certain things becoming more or less common knowledge or, you know, platforms just doing them automatically, you no longer have that job role. And, you know, it can, you can I'm just, as Drew was talking, thinking about that in the context of graphic design or something, you know, fragmentation uh, and how exactly that plays out. Uh, I don't know, but I can see something like that happening. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I agree that I think, in the, the long term, the, the language models will be are going to have more significant effects than the image ones because they they they're rudimentary now only, and they will likely increase in sophistication. So, uh, on the one hand, there's this like apocalyptic sense that we're going to have uh, uh, particular people rendered like disposable by AI, um, but then that sort of um, that kind of gloomy rhetoric of AI producing this dystopian future, which we see so often in like in, in narrative and in film and fiction um, is sort of offset by the kind of radical techno utopianism of, uh, uh, you know, big tech and so on. And I feel like in the middle, you do have some theorists on the left in particular that are trying to imagine a world in which, um, you know, we don't need to be so pessimistic about technology because technology as such has been sort of like liberated in some ways. And like, you know, there's this moment, uh, James, in your book where you make the point that in a sense, the trajectory of open AI 
quote, sums up the difficulties of AI research and development beyond the reach of capital. And like, I guess one way of asking it is, is just like, is there such a thing as AI research and development that exists outside the reach of capital? I mean, you know, does the story of DeepMind and its acquisition by Google, like this is a company that wasn't a company that wasn't making uh, products per se, sort of point to this problem of AI only being experimented with inside the confines or the dictates of the free market with its overwhelming emphasis on like competition, profit generation. I guess, you know, so that's that's one way of asking it, you know, if, if there is such a thing. But then also, like, what do you think a form of AI that wasn't created within these market constraints, you know, what do you think that would act and look and feel and perform like? You know, there is this this sort of idea of left accelerationism, right? Do you think like the left is a bit too pessimistic about technology? Is that pessimism founded? Like, can we convincingly articulate what a non-market development of AI te- AI technology could produce? Admittedly, I'm I'm quite pessimistic about the situation. Mm-hmm. Machine learning, as it exists currently, requires an infrastructure of surveillance, tons of data uh, right. collected through surveillance, and very, very, very powerful computational hardware uh, that's energy intensive. So by definition right now, it has to be centralized uh, or it has to be, it's only available to people with a lot of money to invest. So in the current paradigm, you can do cooperative experiments, data co-ops, you know, you can try making it less intense and, and capable of running on the edge as they call it, rather than the cloud where all the computations done the clouds are owned by the big tech companies uh you could try to make some of it run on the on the actual device you know it's called edge computing and that Mm -hmm. might you know give some more autonomy from the cloud but uh but the i mean the question of this the the surveillance via data is one of the other big questions right if Mm -hmm. you've read any book like shoshana zubov's surveillance capitalism or something the the access to the data that the ai producers have is it's not it's not a coincidence that they also own social networks right mm-hmm. or search engines and they're in the positions for appropriating this data which they were doing secretly until you know it was sort of brought out and you know it continues to occur um mm-hmm. where where would this data come from uh in a, a you know a left uh socialist economy or something is everyone going to be okay with the surveillance do you still want your text to be mined uh and you know <laughs> you know to, to still have that information being given to the commissariat or or whatever uh that that's one of the big big functional questions there and you know it, it does not it's not as amenable to small local initiatives it's hard to have a commune uh of data because the the power of many of these technologies like large language models comes from their huge scale it doesn't it doesn't arise on a small scale you don't have small language models for that reason sure there's some um i mean there's an interesting point that you made about sort of apocalypse i think i mean it's just worth a brief detour but but just you know even when you're talking about journalists or graphic designers i feel like there's almost a way in which we sort of unconsciously desire the sort of like clean slate of the apocalypse like i feel like that's part of the the fascination of with like zombie movies is is not even so much the zombies as as the like as the just emptiness and the like starting over um Mm -hmm. and i feel like that's almost like i feel like for a lot of people like just the relief than like going on in this like horrible corrupt system that is like destroying the planet like if 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 it's already happened then we don't have to like have that constant anxiety um Mm -hmm. So I feel like that plays into the AI stuff, like in terms of how we imagine the future of AI. It's either it's either it's either going to completely fail or it's going to completely take over and like replace humanity, uh, you know, like or it's going to replace all graphic designers. I mean, it happens at all these different scales. It's going to mm-hmm. replace journalists. It's going to replace, you know, manufacturing jobs, taxi drivers, whatever. But, you know, but it always ends up being sort of in the middle, which is, I think, just keeps feeding <laughs> that same anxiety, which is sort of obviously like burning under the surface of our of our civilization at this point. Um, but but yeah, just to just to take a crack at the other question. I mean, um, I, I do agree with with James that, you know, as far as I can tell, AI requires like a gigantic amount of 
of centralization to be effective. And the more it's centralized and the more it concentrates power, the more it is effective at doing what it does um, mm-hmm. because you need those big data data sets. And like, I think, yeah, Silicon Valley has, has sort of tricked us into handing over a lot of data by, by creating these very convenient, very responsive, you know, user interfaces. So the UI basically feeds into the AI because you get, that's how you get the data, like Facebook and Google being the prime examples. Like you create something that's like very easy to use, very intuitive. It's sort of, it sort of feels intimate because it, when you use it, it sort of knows what you're about to do. And, 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 and they're constantly tweaking around the edges that even in subconscious ways, like you, you're, you're sort of engaging with it more, mm-hmm. you know, f- Facebook has obviously turned into sort of a dystopian, monster because of its lock-in but but google continues to to just create these like wow that's super convenient it you know knows what i'm about to type or it it uh gives me suggestions or it gives me intuitively customized search results based on my search history like oh it's so nice uh it you know it 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 feels comfortable and and that's that that is the thing that feeds their you know huge data set generating machine um and so, yeah, it's it's really hard to imagine uh, what um, what that would look like if you you know nationalize Google or something. Are you going to continue to have this sort of you know manipulative the, this sort of nexus of like manipulation and convenience uh, that that generates that data set? But I think yeah. if you look at other sectors, you're gonna you're, you'll see sort of other you know interesting sort of edge cases like health, for example, like. Um, I think James mentioned different data co-ops. Like there's like, there's a, there's a co-op called Savvy that basically, um, you know, has patients with like rare conditions or, or, or chronic conditions can basically keep their data and then pool it and then sell it uh, to research companies so that they get the direct benefit financially of, of, of that stuff. So that's, that's sort of an interesting edge case example, but obviously, you know, health systems like the NHS and in, in, in the UK are j- gathering these giant, you know, relative, like quite clean data sets. And of course, you know, for the private sector wants in on that. And so you have this interesting situation where you have this hugely valuable data set, which could, which could generate all kinds of things, cures, um, you know, right. new insights, uh, new treatments, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously the private sector, yeah, wants, wants that, wants access to that data. And so watching the good negotiation between sort of health systems and, you know, AI and, or, you know, machine learning driven companies, um, and, and, and the sort of, um, outsourcing that happens where it's like, because government hasn't invested in creating its own IT infrastructure, its own, um, yeah. its own way, its own kind of institutions to, to service those, like every, all, all the information technology that happens in the health sector. And then, of course, those companies have a different interest. They like they want to use that lock in to create new profit generating opportunities as opposed to, to serve the public. So I think that, that that sort of intersection of the, you know, private IT contractors and public health services is, you know, especially in Canada, I guess, I don't know what uh, the U S must already be a total mess, but um, yeah, ahead of that, I think, uh, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. Actually was reading about, um, well, since synthetic data is a whole new topic here, but generating extra new, new data from existing data is a new hot topic. You're going to hear about that uh, in, the, in the near future, if you haven't already, but uh, the, some startup has already, the U.S. Health, uh, what's it called, National Institute of Health, I think. Uh, anyways, is giving uh, COVID nineteen data to this startup so they can generate a model that can generate further data. Um, so yeah, they're they're ahead of the game uh, <laughs> uh, from Canada for sure. I think. Yeah. Um, regarding uh, Scott about left accelerationism, what that you, mm-hmm. you mentioned. Uh, and generally, uh, colleagues and I have written some critiques of this uh, before, but generally accelerationism is so fascinated on the technology that they neglect the fact of revolution having to happen uh, yeah. for, for what they're, before what they want to, what, before the scenarios they're talking about uh, can actually happen. There's, you know, that, that thing that leftists have been concerned about for a couple hundred years now. Uh, is their evolution and dropping AI into the 
the world uh, is not going to lead to the collapse of capitalism uh, through full yeah. full automation. I mean, I don't think anybody thinks that's going to happen anymore. So I think that's yeah. the problem with left accelerationism. And that's why I think that's why it basically died out because mm-hmm. that that was it was a moment of technological enthusiasm. Uh, abstracted from the the perennial concerns of leftist thinking about material conditions and and those having to change if for for a revolution or for a post capitalist society. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that like left accelerationism as such is sort of beholden to this sort of um, you know speculating on a technological revolution and sort of you know averse to prescribing any sort of. Um, social revolution or or shift in social relations, um, you know that 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 is like, in a sense, troubling, especially when you know there is such like an urgent need to just imagine radical global democracy to contest the power of you know these massive companies like Google that you know you say in your book is distinct by its sheer size, its diversified nature, its command of data, and also just this like massive investment in research. And, you know, the couple threads there, I feel like I can pick up on, lead me to kind of wonder about the role of the state, right? Like, um, you know, one of the things that that uh, you're both kind of curious about clearly is like, what role governments have in trying to, um, you know, kind of claw back some of the monopolistic control that big tech has over these, you know, socially transformative um, things, these technologies, right? Like, So, Drew, in your article, you say, like, despite spending billions to train a generation of AI experts and conduct the basic research that fuels the industry, governments have so far given away their ability to determine how technology is used. Um, And like both of you have written about how, in fact, Canada is a country that's really keen on, like historically, developing a national plan for AI. And yet there isn't any uh, within this you know, neoliberal model, any ability to imagine how to both build an AI market in the country, how to even you know, do radical things like try to tackle you know, climate change, uh, but while still trying to maintain some control over that technology. That just seems anathema to the, the kind of operations of the neoliberal nation state. So like a lot of countries are following suit in terms of trying to build a national plan for AI. You know, they're focusing on the cultivation of AI skilled labor, but they're and at the same time relaxing restrictions on data collection. Um, what do you see as the sort of horizon for policy when it comes to like actually, you know, meeting the moment, accepting the challenge that there is this, uh, you know, acceleration of AI technology? Like basically, what does a national strategy on AI within a capitalist framework look like? And is there another more revolutionary model. I mean, certainly, you know, China's strategy in many ways is still op- operating within a like a very capitalist framework. Um, can is is another model possible? You know, within the logic of the contemporary nation state. Well, th- it's this is an interesting topic to me because uh, I, I'm Canadian, but I moved to Ireland last year for work, and mm-hmm. so I'm now in the EU context and. Uh, this is, you know, there's a great example of this happening uh, at the moment in the EU. Um, they are trying to put into le- into legislation the, the, it, what's called the AI Act, and this is going, you know, through the European Parliament, uh, and it's it's supposed to be in its final draft, and, but it's, it's being debated, you know, quite rightfully by a lot of people because, mm-hmm. uh, and if there's a saga going back a couple of years now, 2019 when the EU established the high-level expert group to sort of do the groundwork before they uh, started on the actual building of the act. And there's an episode detailed by the German philosopher Thomas Metzinger in an article, he, a journalistic article he wrote, uh, about his experience being involved with that early group and uh, him and some other people who are dubious of capital's influence over AI being good. Um, wanted to have so-called red lines in the document about what should not be permitted at all, right? Certain things that shouldn't be permitted. And of course, that was not received well by the representatives of industry that were involved with that process. And it, it ended up being dropped, unsurprisingly, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we're watching in, in real time the how this is a great test case for how this how AI policy is going to be formed. Sure. Um, 
And it, it's not going to be offensive to industry if if precedent is correct. I mean, we'll see. I mean, you know, in, industry is already very displeased in EU with the general data protection regulation, uh, which puts quite limits on what companies can do with data. And this this will put further limits. And, you know, it's if you read the industry perspective, it's like it's going to destroy their business model. They're going to leave the country. You know, they're going to leave the EU. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. I mean, coming back to the sort of centralization thing, I mean, I think... I think, I think government, you know, governments are in this sort of race to the bottom framework. Certainly Canada, I think, you know, putting, uh, you know, over a billion dollars into AI research and, and, uh, and educating basically, you know, AI hub, like group, like clusters of people who can do AI stuff uh, for companies, you know. They all move to the U.S. anyways. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But they're just, they're just plowing money into it, trying to, uh, Trying to, trying to trying to create this basically yeah just trying to create this these poles of uh, the to attract investment basically I mean I think that's that's more or less the thing but I think starting with places where we actually already have control over the over the data sets um, like health uh, would be an interesting place to to start and say okay we're going to start building institutions around this and and treat it as a commons rather than you know mm-hmm. if you if you look at the sort of open source model where it's like instead of Instead of having one company have proprietary control over an operating system, for example, uh, if that's if that operating system is open source, then then the business model that basically happens is it's like a lake, you know, it's like every like there's different villages that sort of set up around the lake. Everybody uses it. Everybody has an interest in managing it uh, in the public interest, um, and they also derive economic benefit from it. You know, they they can feed themselves. They can create industries. They can you know, set up marinas, tourism, whatever. So, so basically it's the same thing with, you know, you could imagine the same thing with AI where you have a data set that's like managed in the public interest. Um, and, you know, and there, there are like, as James said, red lines around how it can be used. Uh, but then, and, and you have to be licensed to whatever degree by some kind of, by some kind of public oversight body uh, that, that charged with enforcing those things to have access to it, or you can only have access to a certain facet of it where you create, yeah, public institutions that help people understand what data is out there, control who has access to what, uh, and, you know, and, and I ideally be able to delete some of it too, <laughs> if they want right. to. Um, yeah. and, and, and so, and, 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 but then also create, you know, a public policy around collective access to that data. So it's like, oh, we're going to give, we're going to give this nonprofit health research institute access to this data so they can come up with a better cure for cancer. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, and then maybe we'll, th- and, but you know, and, the, and then, and then of course it's up to us to say like, okay, well, like who, who is going to benefit from that? Are we just going to sell that off to the pharma companies and have them make profit off of it? Or can we find, find maybe create another public institution that, um, you know, the, 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 we have to start building power somewhere. And I don't think it's straightforward where it's going to happen. I think, you know, um, but I think what, what is very clear is that, is that AI is accelerating and entrenching and consolidating corporate power uh, and the power of capital. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to start creating a different model somewhere. And so yeah. I think any, any kind of win that we can find in any kind of sector where we can say, this is a different way of doing it, and here's a community of practice for how to do that and how to do it well and not have it be this dystopian scary thing where the government is accessing all your data and you don't know what's going on but mm-hmm. it's but it's something else it's it's a it actually has some kind of democratic um yeah yeah legitimacy to it um then i think that's the place to build from and when, what the canadian government's doing is exactly not that by oh, making yeah. these innovation hubs and encouraging them to be subject to market dynamics, all you do is train people, give them a lot of money and resources for a couple of years so that they can uh, either get bought out by one of the giants, which are all in the States. We don't have them in Canada. We don't have native tech giants. So, you know, all the money, uh, the highest level paying jobs in AI are are in those four or five companies from the States, right? And mm-hmm. either get bought out or you just get headhunted to go work there if you produce something very cutting edge in one of Canada's AI hubs, or even get headhunted by American university, which pays t- three times the salary or something. Right. So it's, 
I mean, there's people all over the political spectrum critiquing the Canadian government's approach to this because it basically doesn't work from any level uh, or any political stance. It's it's not working, right? Mm -hmm. It uh, is not generating AI uh, progress for Canada. I mean, the whole history of deep learning, I don't know if you guys know, like, like Jeff Hinton was a longtime researcher at CIFAR in Toronto, Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. And basically, he's the the guy who came up with the paradigm of deep learning that, that the modern AI industry is based on. And, uh, you know, shortly after coming up with that and it became known while he was based in CIFAR, he w was, you know, taken to Google. Uh, mm -hmm. And all of his grad students who he was working with, which spun off companies from their research and stuff, all of them are employed by big tech. All of their companies have been bought by big tech. So, you know, from the very starting of this AI era, Canada has, has not been benefiting from AI. Right. And, and I think you could imagine just, just one, one little, little comment, but um, I think you could imagine a situation where, where Canada, you know, started to treat some of the data sets that it has, which are quite, I think some of which are quite rich um, as a commons and started to build a sort of, um, you know, nonprofit or more cooperatively minded infrastructure around that, where where the comments is managed in the public interest, and then the companies get sort of perched around it. Uh, you know, m maybe making some profit, but not having control of the of the the thing that generates the value. I think if you did that, then you could imagine Canada being more successful in you know what are ultimately its economic goals, which are to create jobs and and keep people who are interested in AI in Canada, because at least then you could attract people who are interested in doing and not sort of feeding this dystopian machine, but instead, you know, maybe, maybe taking a pay cut, but coming, you know, and, and working on something that actually has the, has a chance of benefiting the public. Yeah. I mean, um, so many things there, right? Like it feels as though we're kind of narrating a struggle over sovereignty in a sense, but I like that we're, you know, like trying to, uh, focus on specific sectors and the question of who benefits as a means of sort of um, reclaiming accountability from a from a uh, increasingly you know increasingly monopolistic system where like as Ben Tarnoff says these companies like Uber and Amazon and Google are basically sovereigns they operate like sovereigns this is why like in James in James's work it's all about like autonomy like how automation erodes autonomy you know I think like. This has to do with just the kind of centrality of secrecy to algorithmic knowledge production, like a culture of secrecy. One of the things that um, I think is valuable about the writing that you're both doing is that it is it is sort of about exposing the, in a way, like mapping the secret of who is around that lake, like who is grouped around that lake. You know, in, in your book, uh, Automation and Autonomy, you talk about like the five types of entities that are basically involved in, in the enclosure of that lake. You've got number one, big tech. Number two, these industrial dinosaurs like GE and others. Um, you've got this startup horde, right? More than 450 startups working on AI, I think, according to CNBC in just the US alone, maybe more. Um, and then think tanks and research labs. And then fifth, in fifth place, you've got state actors, right? So actual sovereigns, let's say, politically, um, are are a distant fifth in terms of trying to actually reap the benefits, basically, um, of what data can help us glean about, you know, potential uh, ways of improving social life, right? It's just obviously not a priority. And so, you know, I wanted to ask, I guess, about work, right? Like the specific sector of like labor, which is, you know, very often foregrounded in debates over AI and automation. Like um, it's a genuine fear. We've kind of touched on it a few times, but I think it's worth, um, you know, reiterating the fact that there is work, for example, being done by data scientists, the people creating the visible AI commodities that earn so much hype. You know, there's a sense that there's now a massive demand for labor with AI skills um, James, your research is based on interviews with some of these people. And I just feel like there is um, like a level of mystery about the kind of work that they're doing. Uh, you actually underscore the fact that like it's mysterious often to the workers themselves what they're doing. Um, at one point, you say that the belief that machine learning is a, quote, occult technology produced by occult means is widely held. 
Um, so people in the business of producing artificial intelligence are talking about how they're they're doing it by like almost intuition. Um, so basically, like I'm wondering how we demystify it. Like if the practice of producing AI-based commodities is itself intuitive, this kind of occult technology, then does that like open up a space of intervention where we can actually demand that AI be devoted to more socially just ends rather than just like marketing or policing or military technology? Well, I mean, part of that uh, occulted nature is simply due to the fact that it's a new practice, right? And it hasn't been you know, best practices code, haven't been codified yet. And the, 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 the industry is actually working on that. Um, so software development was also sort of like this in its early days. Um, and it now is largely codified in what they call DevOps. And um, ML ops is a new thing in the work. Machine learning ops is a new thing in the works uh, as people within the industry try to like standardize and codify the labor processes here. So that's one factor. And another mm-hmm. factor comes from the, the technology itself. Like, like I was trying to get at earlier, the fact that you, you, uh, the emergent property nature of machine learning, that it emerges from, from the data in a sense, uh, that adds an extra layer of sort of unknowability, right? Because you mm-hmm. don't know in advance what's going to be the best way to get something that works out of the data you have. So mm-hmm. some of it seems to be inherent to the particular task at hand. That being said, the, the internal stuff is kind of what I'm, I'm really interested in. So I like to see how I think it, it's evolving endogenously. But, um, but it, I think it lines up, actually. Conveniently, the, the standardization movement that's going on inside actually lines up with uh, the request from outside agencies, uh, uh, communities, and stakeholders like, like us who want more uh, understanding of what's going on with these systems and how they're designed, uh, th- th- there's actually a, you know, a alignment of interest for the moment right now, which I don't know how long that will last, but it's mm-hmm. probably worth uh, w- working together for the moment on that if, if that's possible. I mean, that might be a good place to <laughs> leave things, right? This kind of open-ended feeling of what resembles hope uh, or at least a kind of wonder or a sense of like possibility. Um, but I, I, I did want to ask um, about, uh, you know, this is, this is to the question a little bit of hype, but in relationship to like the collective imagination around AI, right? Um, this seems to be a, a, th- a, a kind of lever we can pull to a certain extent. Um, so like, you know, there are, there are documentaries about AI that try and, um, you know, lay bare what it is that it's built out of. Um, those documentaries, I think you've, you've pointed out in the book that you co-authored in human power tend to be a little bit naive in terms of like, you know, uh, uh, championing machine learning's possibilities while also disguising corporate investments in the technology. But there is something like, there is something aspirational about the idea of computing, reaching this emergent level of, of a kind of unanticipated, performance mastery, you know, like it captures the imagination, right? For, you know, an AI generated performance beating some like master of the game go or like chess is, has been this ongoing fascination. So like those are stories that do capture the, uh, you know, the public's imagination in the book in human power. There's also this like, I think, um, refreshing kind of take on fictional explorations of AI, right? Like, I think it's easy in some ways to just like condemn all of them to look at like, you know, uh, a film like Ex Machina or Blade Runner as like, you know, useless or something, you know, uh, exterior to the conversation. But like in that book, you're actually saying that these narratives uh, of a kind of technological singularity are important as thought experiments. And I know that like you're gesturing to the Terminator series of films in automation and autonomy. Um, you know, I'm just curious what both of you think about this. Like, what role do you feel maybe films that depict our relationship to AI have? Maybe, I don't know, like, what are some of your favorites? You know, is it 2001? Is it The Matrix? Do you like Westworld? Do you think it, do you think it went off the rails to a certain extent? Um, <laughs> any thoughts on pop cultural representations of AI and uh, what sort of work they do? I definitely think that uh, we should d- think about AI uniquely through the lens of 
Arnold Schwarzenegger versus Robert Patrick. <laughs> I'm just imagining a, a meme where like, I actually you know, agree 100%. <laughs> where like, collect, collect, there's a meme where like, you know, or I'm imagining a meme where like, you know, Arnold, Arnold is like, come with me if you want to live. And it's like, <laughs> and, and that's like cooperative, cooperativized AI basically. Um, sure. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, um, you know, but then in, in that movie, uh, you know, Arnold's, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator sort of reprogrammed Terminator is basically there to help them destroy the possibility of artificial intelligence in the future. So, mm-hmm. um, so uh, I, I, I'm sort of torn, honestly, between, between the two. And I think the ambiguity there of, uh, is really well captured in, in, in that movie. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and honestly, it's disappointing that, that you know, James Cameron is one of the very few who's actually done something that has that sort of lasting resonance and, 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 and that creates a sort of a, a moment to, 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 to think in a complex, but, but starkly, uh, you know, human way about, uh, about the implications of what, what, what we're up to. But, you know, of course, Skynet, you know, already exists in the form of like, mm-hmm. uh, ca- capital, you know, like, capital isn't isn't human it it, you know anybody any human that doesn't serve the interests of capital of replicating itself gets spit out and so it's already sort of subordinated uh Mm -hmm. and you know some of the best and brightest layers of humanity to its um to its sort of brutal regime that is obviously leading to our demise at the moment certainly that's the that's the straight line extrapolation so um yeah yeah i mean i as funny as it is, I mean, I do think Terminator 2 is is one of the key uh, fictional references for AI. I mean, you have mm-hmm. the the basic principle that gets repeated a lot now, of course, that, uh, of course, the Terminators are the product of an AI that's not embodied. That's like a, a program AI, right? Some mm-hmm. thing that then creates the machine warriors to do its bidding. And is a creation of uh, a defense contractor in the U.S., right? Which is, you know, pretty plausible, I guess, as far as origin stories go. Um, and uh, I don't know if you, you get this out of Inhuman Power or not, but we, we, we pull on it a bit there. But Nick Land, this former philo- academic philosopher that was at Warwick in the U.K. and is now one of the major ideologues for the alt-right before he turned to the alt-right, he was a sort of Deleuzian theorist of capitalism, cybernetic capitalism, and uh, wrote some very interesting, weird fiction slash theory essays in the 90s that uh, are pretty influential on us in writing in Human Power, to be honest. There's a hmm. Meltdown and Circuitries are two essays that he wrote in the 90s. And he uses Terminator as well as William Gibson's Neuromancer, which is, I think, the other key fictional uh, reference on AI for me. Anyways, it's a novel, cyberpunk sure. novel, and he uses those two things to think about capitalism uh, and machines and how they interact. And he's sort of like on the side of capitalism, which is the weird thing about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says something like, "You know, capitalism is a is a machine." building it is sent back from the future building itself out of the resources that exist in the present and it's a reference to the you know of course the terminator being sent back from the future yeah, yeah. to uh, kill john connor before he can well lead the revolution in in the future right so right. this strange anti-revolutionary pro-capitalist version of of capital as an ai right that's the equation basically that he makes is that right. capital is uh, uh, an AI that's not quite achieved intelligence yet. Uh, so I, I find that even while being uh, a critic of an opponent of capitalism, his his theorization there is pretty evocative and and draws on the, the what I see to be the key fictional text. Yeah, no, and I mean like we could we could talk at length. I think about like the various. Um, pop cultural representations of, of like our relationship to AI and what they do and don't do, how they're simplistic and, and uh, complex. But I think like, um, you know, I won't take any more of your time. Um, you know, I think it's been really, you know, uh, 
helpful for me to be able to talk through some of these problems that, you know, we really do run into issues of like coming up against uh, uh, the problem of projection and the emergence of these kinds of, um, yeah, these, these forms of inhuman power that may have a shaping force. Uh, but I, I like this kind of idea that in some sense, like capitalism is the inhuman power that feels as though it's been sent from some dystopian future um, to sort of, you know, determine the parameters of what's possible today. Uh, but, you know, I think there's a kind of kernel of something uh, like sort of liberatory in, in trying to center on sectors where, you know, we can, I don't know, like gain a certain amount of traction in, in triggering uh, the public's imagination about like what this technology can do in a positive sense beyond just like profit generation, beyond, I mean, play is important, but, but, but also beyond just mere play. Because like these, these, you know, a book like Kate Crawford's Atlas of AI makes it clear that closely guarded secrets within big tech can have big implications um, if nobody's watching, right? Um, so anyway, uh, all that to say, I'm, I'm really appreciative that you could connect today and that we could uh, have this conversation. Thanks for having me. I appreciated the conversation. Thanks, Scott.